If you would, open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 12 through 15 tonight. Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Once you've found your place in the Scripture, please stand to your feet as we read God's Word together. Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. <clears throat> The word of God says this. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. They began to work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word tonight, I pray that you would that you would minister to our hearts, God, that you would help us to listen to your voice and your word, that we might obey you and be spurred on to the good works that you have called us to do. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would move us out of our passivity, our mediocrity, our complacency, our laziness, our other-mindedness, God, where we do not care about the things that you have called us to do. May you rouse us, may you stir us, may you empower us to be the people that you have called us to be. For your glory's sake, God, that Christ might be known here in Hesperia, in the high desert, in this, in this state and in this country and around the world. May Christ be exalted. And may we have some small measure of, uh, of your use in that, God. For we are but your vessels in your hands. And I pray that you would help us to repent of our sins so that we might be clean vessels fit for your kingdom service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, please be seated. The sermon title is When God Speaks, When God Speaks. And uh, Brother Al, if you'll go back to the, um, I forgot what they call those things, Um, the QR code. And uh, if you would like to, please bring out your phone at this time and take a picture of me. I will smile. Um, No, that's not what I want you to do. There's a QR code up there. If you take your camera on your phone and scan it, you'll actually be able to download the notes for today. There's not many, but you'll have the scripture references that I refer to and the major points that we're talking about today. Um, That way, if you would like to just listen along, you'll have uh, somewhat of an outline that you can refer to later. Okay? Or you can print this out and then take copious notes later, whatever you like. So feel free to do that. And if it doesn't work, I'll blame my wife, all right, <laughs> because uh, I used her phone yesterday, and it worked, but uh, anyway, hopefully that worked. Did it work? Yeah, cool, all right. My wife, great job, honey, all right, for helping me with that yesterday. <clears throat> Again, the sermon is titled, When God Speaks. I grew up in a, in a very strict family that, that was not ruled by grace. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the rules were set in place for how we were to live. And when you violated the rules, the punishment came down swift and firm. In our home, the children never dared talk back to our parents. We never dared to disobey them. Um, At least I didn't, not that I was perfect. But my younger brother uh, always set the example for me of what would happen when you disobeyed mom and dad. And so most of us learn from our older siblings and their mistakes. I got to watch my younger brother, who's just 10 months younger than me, mess up all the time. And I'm like, that's what you don't do in life. And so uh, I often learn from his mistakes. But for the most part, when our parents told us to do something, we were trained immediately to do what was said. And on those occasions when we did disobey, we got the punishment we deserved. But there was never any talk of forgiveness in Christ. There was never, never any explanation of why discipline was necessary in life and why it was to be done as an act of love in helping us to conform to the image of Christ. Rather, every time we got in trouble and got disciplined, it was simply because we disobeyed our parents and we did something that they didn't like. It never helped us to see our sin in relation to God so that we would see a need for our Savior. It was just law and justice, law and punishment when the law was broken. Now, as I said, this is something that some of us and many of us are accustomed to. 
right? That when we disobey, there's a consequence. Yet this is not the ideal way to parent because we ought to factor in the gospel of Christ. And, uh, and I mention all this as a way of helping us to understand obedience, all right? That God does call us to obey, but he calls us to obey for a reason. And it's always for our good. It's never done uh, just out of anger. And so um, that's where I think in our home things fell short. We were taught to obey our parents immediately to do what they said. But this obedience that we were taught was never done as an outflow of our love for Jesus Christ. There were In our home, even though we went to church and my parents at that time claimed to be Christians, um, we never had conversations about the gospel at home. We never talked about the Bible at home. We went to church, but we never, we were, we never explained forgiveness. We were never explained grace and mercy and God's justice. And the gospel just never went forth in our home. And it's very unfortunate that that happened. And somehow um, God still used uh, the gospel that I was hearing at, at church. And uh, through the ministers and the leaders that were over me, we were able to come to a, a, a really good understanding of why we were to live the way we were to live. Um, again, we were given the law at home. We had to stick to it just because mom and dad says so. And although God has given us laws, and although God requires obedience from us, that obedience, again, should be an outflow of God's grace to us. Of course, God is God, and that automatically demands his obedience. obedience uh, I'm sorry, de- it demands our obedience to him, just the fact that he is God. But our sin has ruined our relationship with God, and therefore God has come and saved us from the consequences of sin. And now our obedience is motivated by more than just a position and out of respect, our position uh, in respect to God, but it's also motivated out of grace now. That God doesn't give us what we deserve, mercy, and he gives us something that we have not deserved, which is grace. And so now we have more reason to want to obey God when he calls us to obey him. And it's dumb, and it's foolish of us to disobey God. It really makes no sense for us whatsoever to disobey God unless we believe the lies of Satan and the lies of the world. Because everything that God tells us to do is for our good and for his glory. God never tells us to do anything that's bad for him. And the reason we disobey God is because we we believe lies. We believe distortions of his word. We believe that there is someone wiser than our God, whether it be ourselves or another person. And so God requires obedience because he is good. He wants good for us. And he only tells us to do that which is good for his glory and our joy and our joy in him. Now, in the book of Haggai, God has confronted the Israelites in their sinful condition. They're living sinfully, even though God has just been gracious to them. Let me explain how he's been gracious. The prior 70 years, they were in captivity under the Babylonians. Remember how, how the Israelites were in captivity to the Egyptians? Rough situation and God rescued them. Well, here's a different situation in which Israel is under the captivity of the Babylonians because of their disobedience to God. At the end of the 70-year period, Israel is now no longer under the Babylonian rule. They're under Persian rule. They've been given permission now to return to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple and This shows how God saves and restores sinful mankind, okay? And so we see this story evolving that points us to Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, they've been freed. They've been shown grace. They've been commissioned now to show the goodness of God in the way that they live, in their covenant life that we've talked about Uh, prior to this in another sermon in Haggai, but also in Malachi, we talked about their covenant life. Yet in their freedom, and in the midst of the grace that God has shown them, they spurn God, they disobey him, and they find themselves in another time period where they are now concerned about building their own houses versus building the house of God or the temple of God. They are more concerned about their own agenda Versus God's agenda, their priorities are out of balance, they're misplaced and misappropriated, and so God has a message for them to straighten them out. Again, having been freed from uh, captivity under the Babylonians in a period of grace where they're free to serve God, they decide to do something else. It's, 
It's just a sad story of rebellion over and over, and such is the case with our lives many times. Their priorities have shifted from godly priorities to self-glorifying priorities. And so in the previous sermon in Haggai, we looked at this idea, this idea of how God interacts with us when our priorities are wrong, which is a sinful thing to be in, sinful condition. What is it that God does when he's been dethroned from our heart, when he is not the primary affection? Well, Scripture showed us last time that God comes to us and he speaks to us. Not directly, not one-on-one, but God speaks to us through another, okay? Or a mediator, through a spokesperson, through a prophet, or through an apostle. More specifically, even through Jesus Christ. God, and this is something very important to understand, God has never spoken directly to the world without a mediator. He never spoke to Israel directly without a mediator, with someone in between them. God has never even spoken to the church directly. When you, when you understand the pattern of how God speaks to people, aside from being in the Garden of Eden, after sin comes in, we see that God has always spoken through a mediator, through a prophet, an apostle, through something like that. <clears throat> okay? And now we have... Everything that they've said, that God has said through these messengers, we have recorded for us in his word. And that is why we call it the word of God, because it is the message of God through particular mediators to us sinners, to the church, to Israel. So even today when God speaks, when God speaks, it is not to us directly, but through his appointed messengers who have already delivered his word, as if the the apostles were still alive speaking to us, or the prophets of the Old Testament, that their words have been recorded from God, yet they still speak in all times and in all ways to all cultures. So with all that said, we we should never expect God to speak to us directly or through just any old human being, all right? Rather, God always speaks by his word, sola scriptura, okay? We also saw in that previous sermon that when God speaks to us about our sinful priorities, <clears throat> that he uh, deals with us in very, with, uh, in very real and personal ways according to our living. He addresses us where we are and what we're dealing with, and he calls us to repent. That is to turn from a self-ruled life and turn to a, a God-governed life and to think about him as the first love of our lives, individually and as a church. We are all called to do this. And when we're living in sin, we can be assured that God will discipline us to show us our error. This is all stuff we learned in the first sermon of Haggai. Now, for Israel, we need to remember that they are in covenant with God. Okay? And he spoke to them directly through this prophet, Haggai, regarding their sin issue. Within this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, we've, we've talked about this many times and even this past Sunday, God gave Israel indicators and signs that would let them know if they were breaking covenant with him and sinning against him. He gave them indicators and signs. God promised that he would frustrate their efforts in the field. When they went to try to harvest crops, they would be failures at that. Their hardship would come their way when they broke covenant with God. In other words, their efforts would fail. No matter how hard they tried, he would stop them. Yet for us, it's quite different. We shouldn't be looking at our bank accounts and our retirement plans and wallets to determine whether or not God is pleased and blessed. Uh, he's blessing us in our, uh, in our living. Instead, we should simply listen to what God's word says, use it as a plumb line to see if we are off. A plumb line is like a, a weighted uh, string or a, 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 I don't know what else you'd call it, that you drop and it holds it straight. The weight holds it straight. Okay, And the word of God is like a plumb line to see if we are deviated, is leaning to the left or to the right. And so we should use the word of God as a plumb line against our lives to see if we are crooked, to see if we are living correctly or incorrectly. And that's what God uses to discipline us and to correct us and to shape us and to mold our hearts in a Godward direction. And God's discipline often comes in the form of a rebuke as you hear the word preached or rebuke from another believer as they use the word of God to correct you and to disciple you. And as, as he's speaking to your lives, and really, that's how simple it is to be discipled by God, just to listen to the voice of God in his word, and that is enough. <clears throat> so with this background and setup, we come to today's passage. And the point of it is really quite simple. The text answers this question. What is the proper response to God when he speaks? What is the proper response to God when he speaks? And the answer is this. We are to obey God by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are to obey God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And tonight, 
I pray that God helps you to see this. This is phenomenal truth in his word that I pray is both encouraging and correcting, uh, rebuking and exhorting, and just spurring you on to do the things that God calls you to do. So when God speaks, <clears throat> when God speaks, the first thing we see, you'll see a slide on the screen, you should write about now. When God speaks, we see that obedience is required. Obedience is required whenever God speaks. Now, in the prior sermon, in the first 11 verses of Haggai chapter 1, we see that God's word came to the prophet Haggai. This word was for the leaders of Israel. They had no king at this point because they were under captivity. They have a governor named Zerubbabel, and they have a high priest named Joshua. So those are the leaders of Israel at this point. And they're waiting for a king. And guess who the next king of Israel would be? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? Anybody? Who? No, because we're the next king would be Jesus. We are waiting for King Jesus at this point, and they don't even know it, right? But the Lord told these leaders, he says, the remnant of Judah right, was collectively sinning. What remained of Judah after the captivity, they were all sinning as a whole. They were all saying that it's not time yet to rebuild the temple of God. All the while, they're focusing on building their lavish houses for themselves. He tells them, all right, God, through the prophet, to the leaders, that you guys should focus your efforts on rebuilding the temple. And God asks the remnant, he says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Look around and try to discern why all your harvest and business efforts have failed. The Lord says, it's me doing that to you. Consider your ways. And the Lord plainly tells them, all right, that uh, they have left his house in ruins. So God has spoken And what we see next is rather encouraging. It's where we pick up today. What we see is encouraging, that everyone obeyed. Everyone obeyed. The leaders obeyed, and so did the remnant of Judah. Let's look again at verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, (coughs) son of Shealtiel, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And so the people feared, stood in awe of the Lord. So we see, when God speaks, obedience is required by who? First of all, by spiritual leaders. By spiritual leaders. It should come as, now normally <clears throat> when, uh, when I speak, I usually explain the text in more detail than to give an application. Um, this is going to feel a little bit reversed, where the application comes first and the explanation comes a little bit a- afterwards. Okay, so bear with me. <clears throat> It just felt like it flowed better that way for some reason. But it should really come as no surprise to us that God has set order in uh, order of leadership within the world. It shouldn't come as any surprise. He's done it for the family. He's done it for Israel. He's done it for the church. He's done it for government. Right? In Ephesians, if you recall with me, we are told that the husband is the head of the, the wife, even as Christ is the head of who? The church. Right? Within the church, we know that we have elders or shepherds to help who? Church, right? The sheep. But we also know that there's a chief shepherd. There's another area of leadership because Christ is ultimately the shepherd of the church who is over the elders who are under shepherds. That one, that true shepherd is Christ. Even the apostle called for others to follow him as he followed who? Christ. Which is why we read in Titus that elders are to be a model of good works in all respects. Titus 2.7 says, Show yourselves, he's talking to the elders, pastors, show yourselves in all respects, in all ways, to be a model of good works. Leaders have been appointed in the family, in government, and and the church for good reason. The reason why is because the Lord knows the sinful tendencies of humanity. He understands that, and he knows our wicked tendencies, the the wicked slant that we have. He knows that bad uh, bad company corrupts good morals. Humanity has a natural bend, a natural bend because we are born sinners naturally, a natural bend that tends to go the way of the sinful world. And and, and we will follow the world naturally if we don't have proper leaders in our lives. And the world will just follow itself off a cliff, okay, into eternity of hell. And every believer has a natural tendency to wander away from the Lord. We sing a song, uh, Come Thou Found. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to do what? To leave the God I love. That's what I'm prone to do, and you are prone to do. Even though we are warring against sin and fighting against it, if we just float along, we'll be like in an inner tube, headed down a raging river, going over the falls to our death. 
And if you don't believe me, just read the New Testament letters. Look how jacked up some of the churches were. Okay? They had issue after issue. 1 Corinthians is a prime example. Pastor Steve preached that several years ago. They had 20-something-plus problems, sinful issues or doctrinal issues, that are addressed in this letter. That's not a letter I want to get from anybody that says, let me tell you how messed up your church is, number one. And you're like flipping the pages, 20-something? Okay, can you imagine that? Sometimes you wonder if, if this was even a real church. Are they real believers with so many issues? And I think sometimes we think that the New Testament churches, like that was the golden era. There's nothing golden. uh, I mean, there were good things in the Corinthian church, but there was a lot of bad stuff in there. Okay, They didn't have it perfectly, which tells me that no matter what church you go to, you will find things that the Lord is not pleased with. You will. our, Our theology should tell us that. Glorification hasn't happened yet. Okay, We are not fully glorified. We are being sanctified. I promise, just give it time if you go to another church and you're going to uncover areas that need correction or, or you'll find, oh man, I just, I just brought my bad attitude to this new place. Right? And, and my inability to help a church grow healthy, I just transferred that there. So you might as well stay planted and help the church where you're at with whatever weaknesses it has. Help them to grow in godliness and help them to get rid of whatever problems need helping and to fix whatever shortcomings it has and whatever needs it might have. have. Remember when Jesus addressed the seven churches in the book of Revelation? See, that's another book you preached through. Is there anything you haven't preached through, right? In, uh, in Revelation, the Lord addressed seven churches. And how many did he call to repent? Five, okay? Albert said it before I did. Good memory, brother, all right? Praise God. I'm sure the other two had problems at various times in their history as well. But sinners tend to go the way of sin without the help of God, right? Which is why in God's grace, he's given us Leaders, leaders in the home, leaders in Israel, and leaders in the church. Israel needed better leadership at this time, getting back to the text. For whatever reason, and I'll list them here in a second, but for particular reasons, Zerubbabel, he started off leading very well, and then he had fallen by the wayside a little bit as a leader, okay? Fumbled the ball. He was responsible for, when the Jews left Babylon, they came back in three stages to their homeland, to the promised land. He was responsible for leading the first wave of Jews back to the Jerusalem, right after King Cyrus of Persia issued a decree allowing them to do so. So he's, he's leading this first charge, this first uh, remnant back in the, into a restoration period. Ezra makes mention of this in the book of Ezra, Chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, listen to what it says. It's just so that you can see this elsewhere in Scripture. And you may want to go read Ezra. It's, it's a wonderful book, and uh, my desire is to one day preach through that book. But it says, Now these were the people of the province who came out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. All right, so these are the, the people of the province coming out of captivity. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And they came with, and here's some leaders, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, and then it goes on and on and on. Okay, So this leading of God's people back to Jerusalem, it's, it, even though it's not explicitly said in Haggai, this leading shows us that Zerubbabel had leadership capability. He's leading a people who have been captive for 70 years back to start life afresh. Tell me that that doesn't doesn't require some sort of leadership capability. It takes skill. It takes people skills. It takes organizational skills, equipping skills, communication skills, and it takes dedication and fortitude to stay the course with what God has called these people to do after 70 years of not doing the things God had called them to do, okay, and living in covenant. They have to reestablish their nationality and their culture and the the covenant. A lot is going on. So imagine having to organize and mobilize and equip all these people to take their first steps doing the things that God wanted. Ezra Ezra chapter 3 tells us that uh, as they were doing all this, that they built an altar to God, and they offered sacrifices, and they kept the, the Feast of Booths. They also offered sacrifices at the new moon. In the second year of their turn under Zerubbabel's leadership, they even began to appoint Levitical priests to serve in the house of the Lord. 
all while laying a new foundation of the temple. These things were initially going on under Zerubbabel and Joshua's leadership. Remember, the foundation had to be done, the, uh, the priesthood had to be reestablished, the temple had to be rebuilt. Why? Because under God's judgment, the Babylonians came and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, and they were carried off into captivity in three different stages. And now they're returning in three different stages. Okay? So, um, but here we are sometime later, and these leaders and people, they've all fallen by the wayside into their uh, sinful, comfortable living. And they, they don't have God's priorities on their mind anymore. All because, and if you read other books of the Bible, like Ezra, you'll see that some enemies came along. Some enemies of the Jews, they, they frustrated their plans. They, they bribed officials to work against their progress. Sometime later, some of Judah's enemies even wrote a, a letter to King Ahasuerus explaining just how terrible the Jews were. And so this opposition that they're facing in regards to doing kingdom work slowed progress down until eventually it came to a screeching halt. Okay? It's important to note that Satan always opposes the work of God. He always opposes the work of God. And he seeks to slow down the work of God and the work of the church if possible. He will bring it to a halt if he can so that both leaders and peoples are not obeying God, leaders and people. Church, this ought to make you sit up. It ought to make you take note of our current situation. God has been working in our church, but Satan is also at work wherever God is at work. The accuser never rests. The roaring, hungry lion and his appetite for destruction in God's kingdom has not been suppressed by any previous destruction that the church has uh, brought his way in overtaking his kingdom territory. He will never relent when it comes to working against Sovereign Way Christian Church. He won't. He just won't. But we have to have this confidence that when the word of God comes to us, that God will use it to spur us on. He will use it to spur his people on. When the word of the Lord came by the hand of the prophet through Haggai to Zerubbabel and Joshua, we see that it's encouraging that that they obeyed the Lord. But it wasn't just the leaders who obeyed the Lord. <clears throat> we see that the people also obeyed the Lord. Okay? But these leaders, they got back into leadership mode. Okay? They got back into leadership mode when it came to leading like they did at first. They had originally set a good example, and again, they fell by the wayside, but now they began to encourage and exhort and inspire and motivate and mobilize the people of God. And many of us here serve in some sort of leadership capacity. And for a moment, I, I would just like to address my two fellow elders, all right? I'm not preaching to you as if you're doing something wrong, but I pray that this would encourage you, all right? God has called us as leaders of the church to cast vision, has he not? To, to show the people where God wants to take us. And how do we do that? We do that by the word. And that means that we have to be diligent students of the word. We have to be diligent at rightly explaining it. We have to be passionate about it. And it requires that we have to do things. We have to think through, this is where God wants to get us. How do we get there? Who do we need to train? Who do we need to pull on board? Who do we need to equip? Uh, what changes need to be made? Because sometimes people outgrow their abilities to lead a ministry. Things happen like that, brothers, right? And so we have to be intentional at leading God's people and dreaming of new ways that we can equip people and put them into ministry and get them doing kingdom work. And when we see people that aren't doing kingdom work, it's incumbent upon us to spur people on and step up and say, hey, I noticed that you're not serving in a loving way, in a helpful way, in a stern way, who knows, however it might be. But we have some ministry opportunities over here. Do you think you might be interested? That's what leaders do. And because we have a, a church of a few hundred people, we can delegate Right? Part of leadership is delegating so that we're not the only ones doing that. And those are things that we understand. But I want us to make sure that whatever we read in Haggai, that we recognize that God has put spiritual leaders to help the church. All right? Spiritual leaders don't do all the work. They mobilize the people to do the work. And once things are moving, we have to step back and sometimes after people are equipped for ministry, assess and evaluate and tweak and then realize, okay, this is an area where they can improve on in what they're doing. So let me coach them and, and shape them a little bit more and provide the resources necessary and then wonderful. But we never step back and just let things coast because the natural tendency is for us to go by the wayside and do wrong. And so th th that befalls us. And if we don't, take the initiative in ourselves, brothers, 
Who's going to spur us on? Right? That's the word of God. But if our ears aren't attuned to the word of God, we will never have the word of God constantly spurring us on to make us stay on track. And so for us, it's very important that we be men of the word so that we will always hear the word of God spurring us to do the things so that we never lose fervency in leading God's people, this church, to where we need to go, right? We need to be men of the word, okay? And so that's why one of the reasons scripture says, listen, when there are other tasks that need to be done around the church, we need to appoint deacons to help them get those things done so that we can be men of prayer and men of the word, amen? So uh, just an encouragement, not, not that you guys aren't doing that or that I'm not, but it addresses leaders. So I want to address the leaders. And listen, if, you're a, if you are an elder in training, then this is for you too, all right? You, if you're training to be an elder, then you got to start doing elder work. You don't just all of a sudden get the title and become an elder. But this is also for those of us that lead in positions that don't have titles. You don't have to be an elder or a teacher in order to occupy a leadership role. There are other ways in which people lead. So whatever the case is, set the example of what, Christian, of what the Christian life looks like by following God's word. And so while we know that leaders must lead if the, word, uh, the work of God is to continue, it is equally vital that the people of God must follow the leaders that God has put over them. If God speaks to the leaders by his word, and we pass on the word to you that this is what we're to do, now we know God has spoken by his word. It's incumbent of the people of God to obey the voice of the Lord. Okay? That's our second sub-point under when God speaks, obedience is required by who? Spiritual leaders, but also the people. In order to effectively get the things that God wants us to get done, it cannot just be the leaders doing the hard things and the exhausting things. Everyone must step up and do their part. I don't know of anywhere in Scripture where God calls the leaders to do everything while everyone sits around on their behinds and the leaders are the only ones busting their behinds. Leaders, again, are meant to mobilize the masses as they do work also, but they're meant to mobilize the masses, not do for the masses what the masses are supposed to do. Ephesians 4 tells us that elders are to, and teachers are to equip regular believers, right, regular people for the work of ministry. We are to equip you for that. We are to give you the tools and the resources you need, the training and the encouragement you need, the support that you need, advice on how to do ministry. And when you feel discouraged, we got to get underneath you and pick you up and help you get back on your feet. Or even to recognize when you need a rest so that you can strengthen up again and do the work that God has called you to do. We need to help you do your job. This is uh, what a church or a group of Christians who assemble together are supposed to be doing as we covenant together. If God's purpose and agenda are to move forward, the leaders must obey and the people must follow the leader. All right? I haven't played that game in a long time. The other day, uh, I'm going to confess something. So, uh, there was a, f- a few kids running around and screaming in church. I love hearing kids' voices. And uh, I was trying to talk to somebody, and uh, the loud shrill of kids' voices would interrupt the conversation. And so I see Fantasy Easterling over there. I go, Fantasy, why don't you play a game of follow the leader with the kids? And she's like, huh? I go, yeah, tell them to follow the leader and just, just sit down and be quiet. <laughs> I was kidding, of course, and she just started laughing. But we had a good laugh, right? We understand what it means to follow leaders. And so uh, as leaders... We lead and people, our, our church people must follow, okay? If God's agenda is to move forward, people must follow. But many times, in uh, those of us who lead God's people, we've heard things like this. And maybe these words have come out of your mouth before when it's time to do ministry. But I'm so busy. And I'm so tired. And I work so much, and I got sports, and I got a family, and I got my hobbies. I got vacations to go on, and I got school, and I got chores to do. I got errands to do, and I got TV shows to binge watch, and I got friends to hang with, and I got, uh, I got a rest on top of all that. Whew. Pastor, can't you see just how much I got going on? And my reply is, I do see it. I, I know it. I, I live that life. I, I understand completely. But I also have to heed the word of the Lord. I have to heed the word word of the Lord. And the Lord's word says that every saint must be serving the body of Christ. And somehow making advancements 
in taking over the kingdom of Satan with the kingdom of Christ. Whatever that looks like is different for everybody. But every believer has a spiritual gift, and every believer is to use that spiritual gift for the kingdom of God. Many of us have natural gifts. We all have natural gifts in conjunction with our spiritual gifts. And we use those things too to serve the body of Christ. And we elders, we must set the example for you to follow, and you must follow that example. Scripture makes it clear. In Hebrews 13, 7, the Scripture says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Imitate how they live before God. A few verses later, verse 17 the same chapter, Hebrews says, the author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, if the temple, back to Israel, if the temple was going to be rebuilt for the glory of God, if, if the, the temple was going to be rebuilt to display the story, the salvation story, of our sin being overcome by Christ, because that's what the temple system and the priesthood and the sacrificial system was all about, if it was to display that story, then the leaders and the people would have to obey the word of God brought forth by the prophet Haggai. They would have to hear the rebuke of God against their sin of complacency and unbalanced priorities and their fear of men. And they would have to change their ways. Listen, sometimes... Sermons have rebuke in them, and God calls us to sin, uh, repent of sin. And you can get angry at that rebuke. You can puff out your chest. and You can say you don't like the tone of how the sermon was delivered. But ultimately, you're wrong if you don't repent of your sin. Let me ask you, do you think Haggai's message in the first 11 verses, do you think it was sugar-coated and delivered as he walked on eggshells around the Israelites and the leaders? Do you think that's what he did? Or do you think he authoritatively stood up as a spokesman for God and said, I have to tell you what God said? I think he feared God rather than man. I don't think he walked around on eggshells. His message is not a pleasant one to hear. He had to tell the people, hey, you're broke because God is angry with you because you care more about your own houses than his. That's confrontational in a world of people who want to live self-ruled lives, that's not a fun message to hear at all. God is displeased with you. Change your ways now. Now, you might, you might feel the sting of rebuke every now and then. All right? I guarantee that Judah and the remnant of Israel certainly did. Now, while that particular application doesn't apply to us of rebuilding a physical temple, we certainly see that we are all responsible to listen to the word of God and obeying the word of God so that we do the things that God wants us to do. Church meetings, when we gather together on Sunday and Wednesday and other times, um, aren't times for you to come and hear a sermon and go home. It's a time for us Christians to hear the voice of God. That's what we do when we gather. We are coming to hear the voice of our Father to hear God speak to us. And it's often time for us to repent. It's a time for us to reform our ways, reform our thinking, reform what we believe and do and believe what God tells us to do and believe in light of the cross and the empty tomb. So my question is, what are you really coming for when you come to hear God's word? I don't come here because I have a best friend here. I'm just going to be frank with you, okay? I don't come here because, oh, I want to see my best friend, okay? I come to see my brothers and sisters in Christ, yes, right? But I come here not for the sake of socializing on a surface level, okay? I come here to train and to teach and to preach so that God's people will conform to his image. That's, that's ultimately what I care about most. And if we're close and great buds, that's great, Okay? But as churches our size, we can't be equally close and intimately close with everybody. So it's not possible for, it's, it's just not possible to be so close to everyone all of the time. It just can't happen. Okay? If we don't sing Kumbaya together, which I don't care for the song, but if we don't sing that together, that's okay. I'm fine with that. Okay? 
Ultimately, we are co-laborers for Christ. We are soldiers for the gospel. And I want, to, I want you to know that I got your back, and I, want you to know, I need to know that you got my back, because we're fighting against an enemy more ferocious than any other country that might ever come against us. We're fighting against Satan. We need to have each other's backs and realize that we are in serious work. We're brothers and sisters as well, which means we should love one another. We should know each other in some measure. Our hearts should be united in affection. We should love each other by our very position in Christ. Our position alone in Christ should cause us to love one another, even if we don't know each other as intimate as we would like. Okay, Christ has saved us. He's shown his grace in us. Sometimes uh, we can't rate how uh, our love for the church based on feeling because that's not ultimately the right indicator, okay? So let's not put feeling above teaching and discipleship and equipping, okay? We are united in Christ whether we feel goose pimply about each other or not, okay? Christ unites us under his leadership. He governs us by his word so that we will do the work that he has called us to do, leaders and sheep. And so we ought to do what God wants. Let's serve one another, Let's love each other as best as we can. Let's learn the word together. Let's do what the word tells us to do. Let's love our God. Let's preach the gospel to the lost. Let's serve. Let's sacrifice. Let's give as we talked about on Sunday. Let's let's help the damned come to know Christ. And we ought to move out of our complacency and stop only being concerned about our own agendas in life and do ministry together. Remember how I preached on Sunday how the early church was so focused on giving so that others could be ministered to? They were just of one accord and one mind. They were just so jazzed about being able to use, be used by God. Now, one of the often overlooked truths in scriptures is that our spiritually gifts, our, our spiritual gifts are spiritually operated. That's one of the most often overlooked truths in scripture. Our acts of service for God and good deeds for the Lord's glory are done by the power of God. Let me say that again. Our acts of service for God and good deeds for the Lord's glory are done by the power of God. Of course, we do them, but the Lord is with us and working through us. There's a synergistic effort going on. It's not just you. It is God in you. Okay? Look at Haggai chapter, uh, the, the, chapter 1, but look at verse 13. We come to our second point tonight. That when God speaks, obedience becomes spirit-empowered. When God speaks and you listen to him, your obedience is spirit-empowered. You are tangibly in being used by God. God is with you and in you, okay? That's how you know God is in the midst of us. When obedience arises out of the word of God speaking, we can be confident that the spirit is working among us, the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. It says, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. Those four words are so beautiful. I am with you. Don't you love what the Lord tells his people? Why is God telling them that? Just so that they can know that he's hanging around and chilling out with them? God's having some lemonade with us. He's with us. That's not what's going on. He's not telling them this. Um, he, he's telling them this so that they will know that he's the one working in them and through them to accomplish the temple construction project. Okay? I hope you get that. It is the Lord who's enabling them. Listen. It is the Lord who's enabling them to chop down trees, to cut planks, and to erect a building. I am with you. This is God enabling them to do physical work. The Lord is, the, is working through the one who is swinging the hammer, who is framing the building, construction workers. It is the Lord working in and through them. I don't know if that strikes you as a game changer. You know, sometimes we tend to think that God is really at work through people who occupy, leader, uh, occupy leadership positions only, and that is not the case. Somehow we think the guy taking out the trash or the guy locking the building, or straightening up the chairs, or uh, running sound, or emptying coffee filters, or setting up communion. We think like, all oh, that's small work, but the glorious work is in the leadership. That's not the case of what we're reading here in Haggai. So let me correct your thinking if that's you. If you, if you swing a hammer, you swing that thing like you're Thor. Okay? It is God working in you to do the work 
of God. It is God working in you. Know that. You do it for his glory. If you're sticking electrical tape on something, you do it for the glory of God. If you lock up, you do it for the glory of God. The Lord is with you as you do anything ministry-related. In 1 Peter chapter 4, 11, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, it says this. It says to serve in the strength that what? That God gives. Serve in the strength that God gives. That God gives so that God may get the glory through Jesus Christ. Where does your breath come from? It's your breath in our lungs we sing. The food that comes from the ground, did you, you may have planted a seed, but who made the seed? And who caused the rain to fall, like we learned in Malachi? And who caused the crops to grow? And who caused you to get a job to pay money so you could buy fruit that some other farmer made? Everything you have is from God. The energy that you get and the rest you get, you serve in the strength that God gives physically. Why? So that he may get the glory. He gives the strength. God is with us. In Philippians 2.13, it tells us that God is working in us to accomplish his good pleasure. God is working in us to accomplish his good pleasure. He's working in and through you to accomplish his plan. So there's no task in the kingdom of God that is unimportant. Okay? If we ever have a nursery again and you change a diaper, you're doing it in the strength that God gives for the glory of God. So that there's a mom and dad in here that can hear the word of God and go home and raise their kids to be lovers of God. Is that not important? It is. If you open up and flick on the air, open up the building and turn on the air, it means you're responsible for making people freeze in church. okay? Or sweat because you didn't turn it cold enough. That's what that means. You're the one to blame. Of course, I'm kidding. It means nobody likes you. (laughs) About half of the people do and half of them don't. The same is true for the sound guy. Okay, If if you serve in the sound ministry, it means you're making somebody mad at some point because it's not loud enough or it's too loud because you can't please everybody. But my point is this. All right, These are two positions in the church that, that get the most complaints. I'm telling you this for a reason. The Lord is with them in their service. Do you hear that? The Lord is with them in their service. God bless you, sound man. Even if it's too loud or too quiet and we get a little feedback every now and then. I don't care. I don't. You're serving me. I'm not going to whine that your sacrifice wasn't exact for my benefit wasn't exactly perfect. You were serving me. You won't get it perfect 100% of the time. God bless you, Mr. Air Conditioning Man. Well, one person is freezing to death. I'm sweating. I, I think the Lord might be telling me I need, I need to lose a few pounds. Or the simple act of playing a guitar causes my whole body to radiate heat. And I'm like, man, is it hot? And everybody's like, it's cold. I'm like, man. I'm like, I feel bad for you guys. Let me sit where you're sitting so I can cool down just a little. But God bless you for serving. You serve in God's power. And I'm not going to complain that your effort to love me and make me more comfortable as I can be falls short. I think it does some of us real good to remember that when someone serves you, God is with them, enabling them to serve you and to bring grace to you. Can you just let that sink in for a second before I say my next sentence? The Lord is with them in their service. He's, God is enabling people to serve you and to bring grace to you. That's what happens when people use their spiritual gifts. Do you really want to complain that that person didn't nail it 100%? Do you really want to complain that they didn't meet your dress code? Many years ago, we had somebody give announcements from the pulpit, and they didn't have a collared shirt on, and we got complaints about that. Are you serious? Really? They're serving you and leading in prayer, and that's what you were focused on? That it didn't have a collared shirt? I mean, can you point me to somewhere in Scripture where it says we're supposed to do that? Do you really want to complain that every now and then a pastor who's preaching, might show a little frustration while he's preaching, and that bothers you when he's preached hundreds of sermons and hundreds of hours and done thousands of hours of preparation and some humanity came out? Do you really want to complain about that? 
We've had people do that. God is with that man when he serves. Do you really want to grumble that the pot, the, the potluck dinner that we had that didn't have your favorite food? When, when people sacrificed, you know, oh, man, that was a little cold. And, man, they could have used a little more salt. Do we really want to complain? God is serving us through other people. God is with them. Do you really want to complain that there wasn't enough juice in your communion cup or the crackers aren't big enough? We People have complained about that. When someone is serving, is, that's unreal, don't you think? This is the nature of humanity when we forget that God is with us when, he is, when we're serving. We're just taking the goodness that God brings to us to other people and slapping God and saying, I don't appreciate the grace that you're bringing to me, God. I would like it to be better. Do we deserve any of that? The answer is no. All we deserve is hell. That God would bring us grace to other people is amazing. Have we forgotten that God is working in and through us? Or do we only see the sinners serving us in their imperfection? It's the Savior serving us through broken vessels. And in God's grace, he says, I'm going to use a broken vessel to mend up another broken vessel so that they can be just a little bit more like my son each week and each year. We are a work in progress and God is changing us. I hope that you will pray for every servant in this church that works for the Lord. And I pray that you will pray for every grumbling heart in our church whenever they arise. Right? Because the service that we all receive is from God through them as he empowers them. Okay? People are listening online or here present now. If that's something we need to repent of, then repent. Okay? You've got to remember that God is building a spiritual temple a church, a kingdom through his own power. This is what God is doing. And are we going to jump on board and help or sit on the sidelines and the couch and grumble and complain that everything isn't perfect? Listen, we know things don't always go smooth in church. They don't go perfect all the time. Our theology tells us this. We live in a fallen and sin-tainted world. This isn't the new creation, but we are working towards it. Read the word with me one more time and keep this in mind as you see God in this work. In, in Haggai. Look at verse 14. The Lord roused. Who's doing the rousing? The Lord. He roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. That means Sheal, uh, uh, Zerubbabel wasn't doing this on his own. The Lord stirred him up, this governor of Judah. He needed stirring. He roused, the Lord did, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak. And the Lord roused the spirit of all the remnant of the people. God did this, and he's reinstating his gospel project of the temple work. God wants Christ to be known to the nations and how sinners are reconciled. So the Lord is stirring them up to do kingdom work. And they began to work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. When I look at Haggai, I see sinners doing the work of God, and God is with them, doing his purpose and agenda. But we must, come, uh, we, we must come to his word as leaders and people and listen to his voice and obey. The Lord will rouse sovereign way Christian church. Why did God want this temple rebuilt? Again, to lead us to Christ, to lead us to Christ. The temple is part of the Old Covenant, part of the Old Testament law, okay? That's all part of the Mosaic law for Israel, Galatians chapter 3 tells us that the law is there to lead us to Christ. The law is there to lead us to Christ, okay? That means that the Mosaic Covenant is there to lead us to Christ, not just the Ten Commandments. Sorry, Ray Comfort, okay? When it says the law is there to lead us to Christ, it means the entirety of the Mosaic Law, not just the Ten Commandments. It's the whole shebang. This entire covenant leads us to Christ, Galatians 3.24 tells us, until Christ came. That it's our guardian. It's a picture that spoke of a reality. It was the foretelling of what God would do through his son, Jesus Christ, to save us and bring us to himself. This is why God wants this rebuilt. He wants the world to know that salvation is available to them. And so he rouses them. The temple portion of the law, right? This temple that God dwelt in. 
It paints a picture that God dwells and wants to dwell in this creation with us. Creation, all the universe is God's temple in which he lives. And God dwelled with Israel in the temple. But he separated himself from them because of their sin. And so too in this creation, we are separated from God. In the Old Testament temple, a special priest called a high priest, once a year, he would bring a sacrifice into the special room called the Holy of Holies where God dwelt. And the high priest would take the sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice, and he would sprinkle it on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the lid which is called the mercy seat. And in the essence, the high priest, by sprinkling blood on it, would plead for Israel to receive mercy from God on the basis that a sacrifice died in their place. And the priest did this yearly. And this points, again, it points to Christ, who is the great high priest, who once and for all offers himself and his lifeblood as a perfect sacrifice, and then he presents himself with his shed blood into heaven itself before the throne room of God, and he pleads for mercy on our behalf. Everything Israel did in the law showed our need for reconciliation with God and how that was achieved. And now that Christ has come, the law did its job to point us to him to the, for the entire time. Church under the new covenant, which we are under now, the truths of the old covenant still apply in, in measure and that God is still saving sinners and reconciling them to himself through Christ. That message hasn't changed. One with Israel was pointing forward, and now we point back to Christ. But we're all pointing to Christ, okay? God's mode of getting that message out there is not Israel anymore, but the church, which is made up of Israelites and Gentile believers or non-Israelites. That is God's mode of getting the gospel message out now. And so God continues to use us all, Gentile and Israelite believers, to build his kingdom. Even though it is, it's here now, it is yet to come in fullness. The larger kingdom is being built. And the local visible churches that we are all a part of is where this gets worked out. Okay, God's true church all over the world. They take his glory and his gospel all over the world and they call sinners to repentance. And that's how God builds the church or the temple of God now through people of you like you and me. He rouses us and he moves us by his spirit to get the job done. I don't know if you've considered just how intimate God is with you, but when you're serving in the, again in the local body of Christ, it is God that is with you. He's present with you building the kingdom. And I pray that you'll serve with a different mindset now, from now on, as you serve in this church, that you would do it joyfully knowing God is with you. And if you're resisting the rousing of God to serve his people, I pray that your resistance would stop and that you would step up and volunteer in places that God has called you to serve. While it is daylight, let us work. For those that are not Christians that might be watching online, you need to know that we are here to serve you. The best way that we can serve you is by sharing Christ with you and what God, that's what God has called us to do. That's ultimately how we serve Christ, by speaking him into the world and telling everybody what he has done. And so what has God done for sinners? What has God done for sinners? Well, first, Jesus, who was God, God the Son, he came to earth and he took on humanity. He became like us and lived like us, all right, in this world, except he did something drastically different. Unlike, unlike us who rebel against God, Jesus was perfect, okay? Those who aren't perfect, who sin, deserve to die under the judgment of God. Jesus wasn't perfect, or Jesus was perfect where we are not. Let me restate that. But Jesus did die, even though he didn't deserve to die. Why did he die? Scripture says that he went to a cross to be a substitute sacrifice, to offer his life as a ransom for many. That he gave up his life, that we could gain life with God forever. And so the sin that is due us sinners, Jesus said, I will, the, the, the punishment for sin that is due sinners, Jesus said, I will take upon myself, although I am not deserving of that, I will stand in your place under the judgment of God. And that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God so that it would not have to come to us. He diverted it away from us, took our sin upon himself and received, received the punishment for our sin so that God would be a just God and that he punish evil. Scripture says that he did not stay dead, but he went to a tomb, and three days later he rose again. And the reason that he rose, was, rose from the dead was to prove that he's the author of life, but also to prove that you are trusting in the right person to save you, because sinners stay dead 
And Jesus rose, proving that he was righteous. Okay? The scripture says if we would trust this one to save us, if we would trust him, turning from our sin and self-ruled life, turning to him as the Lord of our life now, calling upon him to save us, that God would impart life to us and forgiveness and, and restoration and a new creation and a, a new body to dwell in this creation so that we could be with God. And so we exist to proclaim that message to you. And so we plead with you and urge you, friend, to come to Christ. And I call you friend because that's what you are if you're not a believer. My prayer is that you would become a brother and sister in Christ. You would become a child of God by turning to Christ as Lord, as Savior, believing that he alone can save you. He will take away your sin, and he will give you his perfection so that God can look at you and declare you just and perfect, even though you are not. And friend, that is why the church exists. That is why God rouses us and stirs us and causes us to do things in our church so that that message will go forth. And so I pray that you will receive it. But if you're a believer, may the Lord rouse you to serve him in the strength that he gives. And may you heed his voice tonight. Let us pray.